If you would this morning, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to focus on verses 13 through 21 today. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through uh, the letter of 1 John together, and we're going to continue on, even after we finish chapter 5, we're going to continue on to 2 John and then 3 John. So, but we find ourselves this morning in chapter 4, verse 13, and I believe this is our 16th week, or 17th, 16th or 17th week in, in 1 John together. So if you haven't heard where we've come from so far, you can go uh, catch back up with us. But if you have your Bible open, let's keep it open there. We're going to start in verse 13, but uh, think about this with me here for a second. We're talking this morning, and as, as you can see on the screen, about perfect love, which is something that we all want to talk about, something that we all want, something that we all desire, and it's something that we all want to be practicing in our own lives. I believe this to be true. We want perfect love. Now, the issue is that perfect love looks very different to different people. Ask someone what perfect love is, and you're going to get different answers. What is perfect love? Unless you say God himself, which, yeah, you're right. That is right. God is perfect love. But what do we mean when we say perfect love? And we need to be sure that the definition we have of love is a biblical definition of love, because if you just say to someone love, you need to take in their whole world and say, what do you mean by this word? Because words always have meaning, don't they? And we need to be sure that the words that we give have a clear meaning and that we all know what we're talking about when we say these words. What do we mean by love? Well, what does the world mean by love? If you were to just look the word love up, I don't know if you've ever done that, just take really basic words and look them up and, you know, in, a, in a reputable dictionary, and sometimes you might be surprised what you find. But the word love in many different dictionaries will focus on this idea of affections and feelings. That love is affections and feelings. The things that provoke these affections and stir our feelings of love are good. Whatever makes you feel loved and whatever you want to do to love, whatever you want to love, as long as it stirs up those emotions in you, is what love is. Now, this is how the world is defining love, understand. You can't tell me that something I love or makes me feel loved is wrong in this world. Because you say, well, it makes me feel loved. Or you can't tell me that I don't love this or that or him or her. Right? You can't tell me that I'm wrong. If all love is, is an affection or a feeling with no objective meaning behind it, but it is only subjective, that means that you create the meaning behind it. But what is love according to God and according to Scripture? We don't deny, by the way, that love stirs the emotions and the affections, the feelings. We don't deny that, do we? However, we do believe that the natural inclinations of the human affections are very broken. Would you all agree with that? So in other words, the things that we love maybe aren't the things that we should love, but that can only be true if love has an objective definition. Love is something to be discovered that is there rather than something that we create. 
It's the same as truth. In the postmodern world, they believe that truth is something that you create. Truth is what you say it is. That is true because I say it's true because I feel it's true. But rather, Scripture is very different than that. Reality is very different than that. There is truth, and it is there. It is objective, and we find it rather than create it. And the same is true with love, that there is a true definition of love. There is something that love is, and there is something that love is not. And it is not something that you create or something that you feel, but it is something that comes from another source altogether who has defined it. And that source is God himself. God is love. We just looked at that in 1 John together, didn't we? God is love. True or perfect love does exist, but humanity is not the source of this love. Do you understand what I, what I mean when I say that? Humanity is not the source of this love. In other words, we do not define what love is. Are you all with me where I'm at in our current cultural context? Humanity is telling us what love is and what it should look like, but it is not what God has said. They have created a truth that is not a part of reality, but instead there is a part of reality that we are to seek after. But here's the catch. Not everyone can see it. Not everyone can discover it. Why? Because there is a veil over sinful hearts and eyes that blinds them from the truth. Blinds them. And even when truth is there, it is suppressed. How? Suppressed in unrighteousness. Look at Romans chapter 1. Truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And actually, if you continue on in Romans 1, what it will show you is that, yes, this does affect how we view love and affection. So what is love? Love is something that is really there. It is something for us to find. It is something for us to practice. It is something for us to participate in. It is something for us to feel. Yes, all of this is true. But just because you feel loved by something doesn't make that thing right. Just because you love something doesn't mean that you should love something. So when we, as previous hard-hearted, blind sinners to the truth, are now taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light, all of a sudden we're seeing things we've never seen before. And so we have to modify the way that we're seeing the world according to God's standards and God's truth. Have you followed me down this road? We came from understanding love this way, but it was wrong because we were only clouded in sin. Now that we have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ and given his spirit and there has been an illuminating of the spirit in our hearts that our minds are being renewed. We are being made new and we are seeing the truth of God and being transformed. So now we need to see things in the right way, correctly what is love. So we need to make sure that we don't see love as how we used to see love. Do you see my whole point? We used to see love this way. This is how we defined love. But it wasn't right. It may have had elements of truth scattered in it. Let's not get that confused. But now we have a full picture of what truth is, and we ought to conform our hearts, our affections, our, our attitudes, our minds to what is true rather than to what is false. So when John talks about love here, and he talks about perfect love, 
understand that he means something that actually is there that never changes. It doesn't change. It doesn't, it's not modified. God doesn't change. His love doesn't change. God is love. Who he is and what he does is love. Love has an unchanging definition and an unchanging source in reality. And we ought to seek it out. But as I said, not everyone can see it. The idea of perfect love in our text today actually means or presupposes a particular idea. And that idea is this. It, it's the idea of bringing something into completion or maturity. And so when you see this word in our text today, perfect, it's, it's a little different than, than the way we might use the word perfect, I think, sometimes, because perfect means it has, it, 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 it's absolutely completed already, definite with no, no imperfections in it, right? Unblemished. But rather, the word here is talking about an unblemished thing that we are attaining. Does that make sense? So this word has the, the perfect ideal in mind, and what we are to do is be transformed into that perfect ideal. In other words, we are maturing or becoming perfect in our love. We are being changed. That's why it says that God's love is perfected in us. It is brought about to maturity in us. That's what this idea means. We are becoming more mature in love. As we understand God's love, we are maturing in our understanding of love. We are maturing in who we are. We are changing. We are being modified. Growing into maturity, coming into completion. The big question I want us to consider today is this. How does the believer then experience and practice perfect love? Both of these are relevant to our text. It's John's main emphasis. It's his point. How does the believer experience and practice perfect love? Why do I say believer? Because the unbeliever cannot. Unless they become a believer. And then the question becomes, so then how does the believer experience and practice perfect love? Mature love, maturing love, love that grows, love that reaches the ideal, which is God. And so we're going to look at three different portions of our text today, okay? We're going to group it into three different portions. First being verses 13 through 15. How does the believer experience and practice perfect love? The first way is in the power of the Spirit. Let's look at verses 13 through 15 together. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. Okay, so he begins by saying, by this we know that we abide in him. Now, this sounds very much like John already, doesn't it? I mean, he has said this kind of stuff over and over and over. By this we know that we abide in him. Actually, he's said this a bunch of times already. I have him on the screen. Look at him. By this we know that we abide in him. Here's what he said already. If we keep his commandments, if we walk in the same way in which he walked, if we practice righteousness and love our brother, if we love in deed and truth, if we keep his commandments, if we confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
All of these things. All of these things, yes, are true. By this we know that we abide in him. How do we know that we know? How do we know that we belong to him? How do we know that we have his spirit abiding in us? How do we know that we are abiding in him? How do we know? Well, all these are true. How is he telling us today in this particular text? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. This is how we know. John wants true believers to have assurance of their salvation in the midst of confusing and troubling times. Do you remember the situation here? We have to keep in mind the situation, the context. There were a bunch of people, part of their church, that have just left. And they're wondering, how can this be? Is Christ divided? Is God divided? Are there multiple sources of truth? Why, why is this happening? Are, are they right and we're wrong? Or are we right and they're wrong? Because both can't be true. So they're confused, and it's a very troubling time for them. But what does John want for them? Assurance of their salvation. And if John wants it, God himself wants it because this is his word. Do you know what God wants for you? Assurance of your salvation. Do you know that God wants you to have assurance of your salvation? How do we know that we abide in him and he in us? He's made this point already. I'll just read it for you. It's 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That's chapter 3, verse 24. So he's almost said the exact same thing previously. But here he is saying, because he has given us of his spirit. It's actually in, we've talked about this before, the perfect tense. And so it's a past reality. We're living in those effects today. And so he's saying, he has given us his spirit. That has already happened. And we're living in the benefits of that today. Because we have the spirit of God, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. We have seen. When is that? In the past. And testify. When is that? In the present. We have seen and we testify currently. Because we have seen, we testify that this is true. What we have seen, we are telling you. And isn't this what John actually says repeatedly? What we have seen and we have heard and we have touched and we have looked upon. We are proclaiming to you. This is what he's saying. So what we have seen and we know to be true, we now today confess. We testify, we proclaim that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So the ability to see the Father, that he has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, comes how? By means of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. I'll say it this way. The internal presence and witness of the Spirit of God is the cause of belief and assurance for the child of God. Are you your own cause of belief or is the Spirit the cause of belief? Are you your own cause of assurance or is the Spirit the cause of assurance? Both are, have the same answer. It is the Spirit at work. I want to show you a couple passages. I have them there if you want to jot them down. Maybe you can look at those references later. You can follow them uh, with me now, if you'd like, 
John 3, 3 says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Tell me, which comes first? A seeing of the kingdom of God and saying, I like that, and then joining it, or are your eyes opened first so that you can see the kingdom of God? Which, which happens first? No one, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Being born again, you can't see the kingdom of God without it. Do you see? We have seen and we testify. They could not see without God working. And I want to continue to press that point here. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. How? How did He save us? And why did He save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How does God save? By means of washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Is this, it is the Spirit of God that gives spiritual sight when God gave us his Spirit. If you can't see something, you can't testify to it unless you're bearing false testimony or witness. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 7. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded, listen to what it's blinded, the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Do you hear that? The unbelieving world, their minds are blinded. A blind mind. You feel that sometimes, don't you? A blind mind. Sometimes I feel the blind mind at work in me. That's a past reality, but it wants to hang on. A blinded mind to the gospel to keep them, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So in other words, unless that veil is taken away, they're not going to see it. It keeps them from seeing it. So somehow that veil has to be removed. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, and here's, here's the, the example he gives us, or an illustration is what it is. He said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, when did God say that? In the beginning, in Genesis, right? Let there be light. Now, when he spoke it, there was light, and all of a sudden, without light, things are not visible, right? So God said it, and there was light, and all of a sudden, things became visible. That God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the way or the means or the source by which people come to see by God shining a light on their hearts so that they can see? God lifts the veil of our spiritual blindness by his spirit. So it's those who have the Spirit of God that have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And then verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. What he's saying is, 
for all those who have had their eyes open to see by the light of the gospel the things that are true and they testify, they confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we can be sure of this, that God abides in him and he in God. That's his whole point. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If you truly confess and truly believe this to be so, then God abides in you and you abide in God. But look at verse 16, because you might say, and I know many of you told, have told me this, well, they say they're a Christian. You have friends or family members or someone you know, they say they're a Christian. Are they a believer? Well, they say they are. And we all know what you mean by that. They say they are, but it doesn't seem like they are. They have no fruit in their life. They can't even articulate the gospel for me, so I have a hard time believing that they actually are. So what does confess or testify mean then? Does it just simply mean to say, I'm a Christian? If there's a survey and you're filling out your name and it says religion, you check Christianity. That makes me a Christian. Is that what he means? Of course, that's not what he means. He means something different. He means something deeper. He means something more true. And verse 16 tells us that. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Just stop right there. I would translate this differently. And we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. We have known and have believed the love which God has for us. Both again in the perfect tense. Living in the present of a past event. What is the event that they're looking back on? They've come to know and come to believe at some time in the past. What are they looking back on? When did this thing happen? What am I looking to? We have known and we have believed. When? When did that come about? When did you believe? If no one has ever asked you, if you have never told anyone when you came to believe, is there anything for you to look back on and say, that's when I came to believe? And by the way, I don't mean a particular day, hour, time, moment, okay? If someone tells you you have to have that, they're just wrong about that. Because sometimes it's, it's really hard. But, you, but, I, but what is true is that you can look back on a, ver- a season of time. For some, it's shorter. For some, it's a bigger time. For some, it's more clear. For some, it's a little more confusing, especially if you were raised in a Christian home. And your parents had you baptized at four years old, and you didn't really know what you were baptized, but you've always been called a Christian, so maybe I am. It's really difficult to look back on that experience. You don't know. You're confused. I've just always believed. Have you? Since when? Like a week old? Uh, when, did it, when did it happen? There is a time when you came to believe. Look at the two words, to know and to believe. Do you think those are two different words, two different concepts? We, can, we have come to know and we have come to believe. Why two different words there? Because they mean two different things. To come to know is to grasp with the mind. To believe comes from that same root, faith, to trust, to entrust yourself to it. So you've come to grasp it, and you've come to trust it. So we, those who abide in him, those who have God abiding in us, by the Spirit of God, by his power at work, We have come to know and to trust the love that God has for us now. You might have a 
mental grasp in some regard of who Jesus is and what he did, that is not salvation. Salvation is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John summarizes that how? By love. Love. This is the embodiment and the perfect example and outworking of God's love, Jesus Christ. That's the picture. That's the fullness. So there are two results. The results of the Spirit's work in believers is that we come to know God's love for His children. And we come to believe God's love for His children, which includes you if you have faith in Christ. It includes yourself, right? So get the picture here. What he's saying is that there is a love from God. Unbelievers can't see it, can't understand it, can't comprehend it. They don't get it. You've experienced this in the world that you live in, right? Whether it be a a family member or someone in your life who's an unbeliever and you tell them about the gospel, they don't get it. They can't connect the dots. Even someone who claims to be a Christian has a hard time connecting the dots. And you might say, well, why is that? Because they can't see. May be the answer. So we have come to know that God has love for his children and we come to understand the depth of it. But then the second part of the Spirit's work is we come to believe or trust or entrust ourselves to God's love for his children. All of you are at least a child of, 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 of an adult, of a parent, right? Um, and some of you, many of you are a, a parents yourself. Do you think that your children know how much they love you? I didn't say that the way I wanted to say it. Do you think, you knew, but you were like, where's it going with this? Do you think your children know how much you love them? That's the question. Do you think your children know how much you love them? But you have it. You know it's there, right? I mean, but, oh, we have a hard time expressing that sometimes, especially when you're frustrated, right? Had a busy day. You're cranky. They're cranky. They're tired and cranky and hurt right? Whatever the experience is, we're not translating our love, and by the way, our love isn't even perfect. And yet, our children still have a hard time grasping that. So, we are children of God. We need to look at our Father and say, here is the great magnitude with which He has loved us. It is the Spirit that communicates that truth to our heart. He helps you to understand how much He loves you. Have you come to understand and entrust yourself to this fact that God loves you? Do you trust it? Do you have people in your life that love you? You know they love you. Do you entrust yourself to their love? Because that's risky, isn't it? To entrust yourself to someone else's love. You know what I mean by that. Do you entrust yourself to God's love for you? Let's look at the second thing here. So, how do believers experience and practice perfect love, maturing love, great love? Well, the first that we can't deny and must come is the power of the Holy Spirit. The second is this, by the example of Jesus. Look at verses 16 through 18. 
So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Just remember that. We're going to come back to that. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Okay, let's look at these couple of verses together. I have to uh, bring you a different translation again. This is... It's difficult. If you look at different translations, if you don't have an ESV and I'm reading this, your translation is different. I understand that. It's because it's a little tricky. Um, Here's my translation. In this, love has been perfected among us in order that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. Just as he is, so are we in this world. In this love has been perfected, brought to maturity among us. That is, it, love comes to maturity in us in this way. And he hasn't said it yet, but he's saying, when I tell you this, you're going to see something that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. But he hasn't told us what it is yet. Okay, so in this, love has been perfected. Pause. In order that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. No, let me tell you what it is. Just as he is, so are we in this world. That's it. That's his point. That's what he's getting to. But what does that even mean? Just as he is, so are we in this world. And how does that bring about confidence? How is love perfected in us through that? What does that mean? He has said a very similar thing in 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you hear the similarity in the concepts there? Perfected love and something about the way that Jesus behaved in this world. If God abides in us and we abide in God, then we will be behaving like Jesus in this world. That's the point. This is what it looks like for love to come to maturity in us if we are behaving like Jesus in this world. If you have come to understand the love that God has for us in Christ, if you have come to believe the love that God has for us in Christ, then you will be acting like him because he is the ultimate example of God's love. But here's something else we have to know as we're considering these things is that your love will only go as deep as the love you have known. Your love will only go as deep as the love you have known. I want you to consider children who have been loved versus children who have been abused and neglected. Do you know that there is a difference in them? Do you know that there is a difference in the way that they express love because they have been changed by the way they have been loved? Do you see it? Or how about this? Those with godly parents who are examples to them, who have godly marriages versus those 
whose parents were not believers and had a completely different experience than you, does it change the way they see things? Yes. Left without the Spirit of God, left without the truth of God, left without His Word, our love is only going to go as deep as the love we have known because that's all we know. We don't know there's more to it than that. That's all we know. But by the Spirit of God, we see that we were simply blinded. We didn't see all that love was, right? If you have seen the love of God, you come to trust it. And then you are the way you are, and your love will change forever. You can't ever go back to being the same. Once you have been loved by God, you can't ever see things differently. Everything has changed. Everything about my life has changed because of the great love with which he has loved me. Everything is different. I see through the lens of God's love for me and it has changed my heart. And what John is saying is, and yes, that is right. That's the way it works because God abides in you and you abide in him. You have experienced the great love. You've come to know it. You've come to trust it. You've come to believe in it and it has shaped you. It has changed you. And so why is he telling them all this? so that they might have assurance of their salvation. And you see it in the example of Jesus. He's saying this, if the Spirit of God is at work in you, you will be behaving like Jesus in this world. Now, you're not going to do it absolutely 100% perfectly, but you're going to be walking in the same way in which he walked. If the love of God has changed you, you're going to be walking in love. You want a good example of love? Look to Jesus. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What does this have to do with anything? It seems like a completely different, like it's reading out of a different book or something, right? I, I get that it feels like that. But he is trying to prove the same point. He's talking about the example of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. It's so funny because if you remove this from its context, man, you could, you could make this mean whatever you want it to mean. Going skydiving today. Perfect love casts out fear. How can you do that? Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. Do you know how much I've been loved by Jesus? There is no fear. That's not what this means in any way whatsoever. That's not at all what this means. If you've said that in circumstances, how can you not be afraid? Hey, there is no fear in love. It's, that's not what it means. Not what it means. What is the context here? For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, he's proving what perfected love looks like. And he's trying to get them to see that if you are a believer, if you have the Spirit of God in you, and you see the example of Jesus, you're not going to fear. Fear what? I wish all things, but that's not what's being said here. Mature love, perfected love, perfecting love, does not retain a fear of condemnation from God. Why? Because you have seen with true eyes the great love that he has for you and you have entrusted yourself to his love. You are, you are 
saying, God, I know that you love me. I, I, I trust that you love me. And the way that you love me is perfect. It couldn't be any better. And so I just, I trust you. However you want to love me, whatever that looks like, I trust you with it. And I know and I believe because of what Jesus has done, because you love me that much that you have promised me that I am no longer condemned if I have faith in Jesus Christ. And I do no longer fear condemnation from God. Perfect love casts out fear. That is, the perfect love in you casts out fear. If love has been brought to maturity in you, you will not be fearing condemnation from God because you have understood God's love to such a degree that you understand that he's not going to condemn you. Does this make sense? He says it in his gospel, John does, in John 3, 17 and 18. What came before John 3, 17? John 3, 16. I'm just saying that because you know John 3, 16 very well. For, this is verse 17. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And why have they not believed? Because there remains a veil over their minds that keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel. And they don't even know what love is. But you do, if you have faith in Christ, if the Spirit of God is at work in you, you see it. And how this should matter for you, what, is, what does all this have to do with anything? Well, it should give you assurance of faith, but then it, should also be, it should also be transforming you to be acting on this love yourself, practicing it, both experiencing it, right, that assurance, and then also practicing this love. And that's what our last few verses are talking about. Verses 19 through 21. It says, we love because he first loved us. Man, imagine if that was in reverse. He loves us because we first loved him. Would, would God love any of us if he was simply waiting around for us to love him first? Wouldn't happen. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. He's already said this before, hasn't he? For he who does not love his brother whom he, whom, he, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. How? With the same love with which you have been loved by God. So this is our third way. How does the believer come to both experience and practice perfect love? For the love of God. What would be different than that? For the love of yourself. Do you ever practice something, love someone, maybe in quotations, but really what you're doing is you're protecting yourself and loving yourself? Consider that. The reason you said that, the reason you did that, the reason you went out of your way for them, the reason you did it is so that they might treat you better because you love yourself and you want yourself to be treated better. Do you see how the motivation can be entirely different? 
how is it that we practice love? We do it for the love of God because his love has changed us and because we love him so much, we can never go back and so we ought to be living as objects of his affection. Loved children act differently than unloved children. You are loved children. You should act like it. Rather than acting like someone who is unloved. And if you have children, sometimes you wonder, why are you acting like that? You're acting like we're crazy at home. Acting like you get, you're abused or you're, like you're unloved or something. You're neglected. Why are you acting like that? Right. That's how we act. We act as if we are not loved by God. We act as if we are neglected by our Heavenly Father. But it's not true. You are loved by Him. You are cared for by Him far more than our minds can even grasp. So then why are we not acting like it? You should be. Because actually anybody that says they love God but does not love his brother is a liar. A liar. That's, that's harsh, isn't it? It's strong. But if you say you love God, but yet you're not loving others for God's sake because of his love, then you're actually a liar, lying to yourself, lying to everyone around you. Perhaps you have given yourself false assurance that you love God, but yet, do I really? Has God's love manifested itself in my life? Do I look like someone who has been loved by God and loves God? The children of God have God abiding in them. It's a big point. When we love the children of God, guess what? We are loving God himself. How is that? Because God abides in his children. Have you considered that? That when you love God's children, you are loving him. When you love my children, you care for them, you encourage them, get them gifts, pay attention to them, have fun with them, correct their bad behavior. Yes, that's okay. Guess what you're doing? You're loving them, and who are you loving? You're loving me. These are my children. Right, we are God's children. When you love God's children, you are loving him. When you care for God's children, you are loving God. When you encourage them, when you hold them accountable to bad behavior, yes, you are loving God's children. If you do not love the children of God, you're neglecting to love God. Because we see it different, don't we? These are people, that's God. People I don't like, God I like. Get the people out, give me just God. Except, you got a problem. If you truly say you love God, what must you be doing? Loving his children. I know that we have a hard time with that just by nature. But what we must do is embrace the children of God because they are his. Do you want to love God? Love his children. This is his commandment. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
so maybe we ask the question here at the end. How can I experience and practice perfect love? Well, I think just a couple of questions to get us thinking about this, maybe bring some application for you, okay? The first is this. Have you come to see and understand God's love? I mean, really. Because if it looks like human love, if it looks like it's imperfect love, if it looks like God could have done something a little better, then you haven't seen it. Have you come to trust God's love? Trust it. Have you entrusted yourself to him? Maybe a couple more questions. Do you have a fear of punishment from God? Because you know that you're a sinner and you still are fearful that God one day is going to come back on his promise. Uh, That was too bad. That thing I did was really bad, though. I don't think you understand how bad that thing was. And I'm just waiting on God to punish me. Now, punishment is different than discipline. Punishment has to do with wrath, something that Jesus himself absorbed for your sake. So there's nothing left. There's no more wrath and punishment left if Jesus took it all, right? So there's none of that left for you. And you have to entrust yourself to the one who said there is no more condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. So, do you have assurance of your salvation? And then just two more. Are you following the example of Jesus' love? Are you loving God as you are loving others? You get what I mean by that last one? How do you love God? By loving his children. Is that how you're loving God? Is that an expression of your affection for God? Because he's the one that's defined love, right? So we ought to be obedient to the what he has said. And what has he said? Look, look at that last verse, 21. This is his commandment. You want to know what is true and what is false? What is actual and what is a lie? Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You must. There's no questioning it. You must. And so today, I hope that you're walking away with understanding what perfect love is. Yes, it is something that God has and that he has given. It is something that the believer can experience and practice as we are living in this life, being sanctified by his spirit, growing and loving. But as we entrust ourselves to him by the power of God, he is enabling us to see him more, see him more clearly, understand his love for us. He is giving us the power. He is showing us the example of Jesus. And we are living as loved children as we love God's children. And this is what he wants from us. And this should bring about the assurance of our salvation because we understand in our hearts that we have been changed forever by God's great love for us. Let's pray.